Section two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume five, Part one. Derues by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two. Derues arrived in Paris in seventeen sixty. It was a new horizon where he was unknown. No suspicion attached to him, and he felt much at his ease. Lost in the noise and the crowd of this immense receptacle for every vice, he had time to found on hypocrisy his reputation as an honest man. When his apprenticeship expired, his master proposed to place him with his sister-in-law, who kept a similar establishment in the Rue Saint-Victor, and who had been a widow for several years. He recommended Derues as a young man whose zeal and intelligence might be useful in her business, being ignorant of various embezzlements committed by his late apprentice, who was always clever enough to cast suspicion on others. But the negotiation nearly fell through, because one day Derues so far forgot his usual prudence and dissimulation as to allow himself to make the observation recorded above to his mistress. She, horrified, ordered him to be silent, and threatened to ask her husband to dismiss him. It required a double amount of hypocrisy to remove this unfavorable impression, but he spared no pains to obtain the confidence of the sister-in-law, who was much influenced in his favor. Every day he inquired what could be done for her. Every evening he took a basket-load of the goods she required from the Rue Comtesse d'Artois, and it excited the pity of all beholders to see this weakly young man, panting and sweating under his heavy burden, refusing any reward, and laboring merely for the pleasure of obliging, and from natural kindness of heart. The poor widow, whose spoils he was already coveting, was completely duped. She rejected the advice of her brother-in-law, and only listened to the concert of praises sung by neighbors, much edified by Derues' conduct, and touched by the interest he appeared to show her. Often he found occasion to speak of her, always with the liveliest expressions of boundless devotion. These remarks were repeated to the good woman, and seemed all the more sincere to her as they appeared to have been made quite casually, and she never suspected they were carefully calculated and thought out long before. Derues carried dishonesty as far as possible, but he knew how to stop when suspicion was likely to be aroused, and though always planning either to deceive or to hurt, he was never taken by surprise. Like the spider which spreads the threads of her web all round her, he concealed himself in a net of falsehood, which one had to traverse before arriving at his real nature. The evil destiny of this poor woman, mother of four children, caused her to engage him as her shopman in the year 1767, thereby signing the warrant for her own ruin. Derues began life under his new mistress with a master stroke. His exemplary piety was the talk of the whole quarter, and his first care had been to request Madame Legrand to recommend him a confessor. She sent him to the director of her late husband, Père Cartalt, of the Carmelite order, who, astonished at the devotion of his penitent, never failed, if he passed the shop, to enter and congratulate Madame Legrand on the excellent acquisition she had made in securing this young man, who would certainly bring her a blessing along with him. Derues affected the greatest modesty and blushed at these praises, and often, when he saw the good father approaching, appeared not to see him, and found something to do elsewhere, whereby the field was left clear for his two credulous panegyrists. But Père Caltalt appeared too indulgent, and Derues feared that his sins were too easily pardoned, and he dared not find peace in an absolution which was never refused. Therefore, before the year was out, he chose a second confessor, Père Denis, a Franciscan, consulting both alternately and confiding his conscientious scruples to them. 
Every penance appeared too easy, and he added to those enjoined by his directors continual mortifications of his own devising, so that even Tartuffe himself would have owned his superiority. He wore about him two shrouds, to which were fastened relics of Madame de Chantal, also a medal of St. Francois de Saps, and occasionally scourged himself. His mistress related that he had begged her to take a sitting at the church of St. Nicolas, in order that he might more easily attend service when he had a day out, and had brought her a small sum which he had saved to pay half the expense. Moreover, he had slept upon straw during the whole of Lent, and took care that Madame Legrand heard of this through the servant, pretending at first to hide it as if it were something wrong. He tried to prevent the maid from going into his room, and when she found out the straw, he forbade her to mention it, which naturally made her more anxious to relate her discovery. Such a piece of piety, combined with such meritorious humility, such dread of publicity, could only increase the excellent opinion which everyone already had of him. Every day was marked by some fresh hypocrisy. One of his sisters, a novice in the convent of the ladies of the Visitation of the Virgin, was to take the veil at Easter. Derues obtained permission to be present at the ceremony, and was to start on foot on Good Friday. When he departed, the shop happened to be full of people, and the gossips of the neighborhood inquired where he was going. Madame Legrand desired him to have a glass of liqueur, wine he never touched, and something to eat before starting. "'Oh, madame!' he exclaimed. "'Do you think I could eat on a day like this? The day on which Christ was crucified! I will take a piece of bread with me, but I shall only eat it at the inn where I intend to sleep. I mean to fast the whole way.' But this kind of thing was not sufficient. He wanted an opportunity to establish a reputation for honesty on a firm basis. Chance provided one, and he seized it immediately, although at the expense of a member of his own family. One of his brothers, who kept a public house at Chartres, came to see him. Derues, under pretense of showing him the sights of Paris, which he did not know, asked his mistress to allow him to take in the brother for a few days, which she granted. The last evening of his stay, Derues went up to his room, broke open the box which contained his clothes, turned over everything it contained, examined the clothes, and discovering two new cotton nightcaps, raised a cry which brought up the household. His brother just then returned, and Derues called him an infamous thief, declaring that he had stolen the money for these new articles out of the shop the evening before. His brother defended himself, protesting his innocence, and indignant at such an incomprehensible treachery, endeavored to turn the tables by relating some of Antoine's early misdeeds. The latter, however, stopped him by declaring on his honor that he had seen his brother the evening before go to the till, slip his hand in, and take out some money. The brother was confounded and silenced by so audacious a lie. He hesitated, stammered, and was turned out of the house. Derues worthily crowned this piece of iniquity by obliging his mistress to accept the restitution of the stolen money. It cost him three livres, twelve sons, but the interest it brought him was the power of stealing unsuspected. That evening he spent in prayer for the pardon of his brother's supposed guilt. All these schemes had succeeded, and brought him nearer to the desired goal, for not a soul in the quarter ventured to doubt the word of this saintly individual. His fawning manners and insinuating language varied according to the people addressed. He adapted himself to all, 
contradicting no one, and while austere himself, he flattered the tastes of others. In the various houses where he visited, his conversation was serious, grave, and sententious, and as we have seen, he could quote scripture with the readiness of a theologian. In the shop, when he had to deal with the lower classes, he showed himself acquainted with their modes of expression, and spoke the billingsgate of the market women, which he had acquired in the Rue Comtesse d'Artois, treating them familiarly, and they generally addressed him as Gossip des Rues. By his own account, he easily judged the characters of the various people with whom he came in contact. However, Père Cautot's prophecy was not fulfilled. The blessing of heaven did not descend on the Legrand establishment. There seemed to be a succession of misfortunes which all Derues' zeal and care as shopmen could neither prevent nor repair. He by no means contented himself with parading an idle and fruitless hypocrisy, and his most abominable deceptions were not those displayed in the light of day. He watched by night. His singular organization, outside the ordinary laws of nature, appeared able to dispense with sleep, gliding about on tiptoe, opening doors noiselessly. With all the skill of an accomplished thief, he pillaged shop and cellar, and sold his plunder in remote parts of the town, under assumed names. It is difficult to understand how his strength supported the fatigue of this double existence. He had barely arrived at puberty, and art had been obliged to assist the retarded development of nature. But he lived only for evil, and the spirit of evil supplied the physical vigor which was wanting. An insane love of money, the only passion he knew, brought him by degrees back to his starting point of crime. He concealed it in hiding places wrought in the thick walls, in holes dug out by his nails. As soon as he got any, he brought it exactly as a wild beast brings a piece of bleeding flesh to his lair, and often by the glimmer of a dark lantern, kneeling in adoration before this shameful idol, his eyes sparkling with ferocious joy, with a smile which suggested a hyena's delight over its prey, he would contemplate his money, counting and kissing it. These continual thefts brought trouble into the Legrand affairs, cancelled all profits, and slowly brought on ruin. The widow had no suspicion of Derues' disgraceful dealings, and he carefully referred the damage to other causes, quite worthy of himself. Sometimes it was a bottle of oil, or of brandy, or some other commodity which was found spilt, broken, or damaged, which accidents he attributed to the enormous quantity of rats which infested the cellar and the house. At length, unable to meet her engagements, Madame Legrand made the business over to him in February 1770. He was then twenty-five years and six months old, and was accepted as a merchant grocer in August the same year. By an agreement drawn up between them, Derues undertook to pay twelve hundred livres for the goodwill, and to lodge her rent-free during the remainder of her lease, which had still nine years to run. Being thus obliged to give up business to escape bankruptcy, Madame Legrand surrendered to her creditors any goods remaining in her warehouse, and Derues easily made arrangements to take them over very cheaply. The first step thus made, he was now able to enrich himself safely and to defraud with impunity under the cover of his stolen reputation. One of his uncles, a flower merchant at Chartres, came habitually twice a year to Paris to settle accounts with his correspondents. A sum of twelve hundred francs, locked up in a drawer, was stolen from him, and accompanied by his nephew he went to inform the police. On investigation being made, it was found that the chest of drawers had been broken at the top. As at the time of the theft of seventy-nine Louis from the abbey, Derues was the only person known to have entered his uncle's room. 
The innkeeper swore to this, but the uncle took pains to justify his nephew, and showed his confidence shortly after by becoming surety for him to the extent of five thousand livres. Derues failed to pay when the time expired, and the holder of the note was obliged to sue for the surety of it. He made use of any means, even the most impudent, which enabled him to appropriate other people's property. A provincial grocer on one occasion sent him a thousand weight of honey in barrels to be sold on commission. Two or three months passed, and he asked for an account of the sale. Derues replied that he had not yet been able to dispose of it advantageously, and there ensued a fresh delay, followed by the same question and the same reply. At length, when more than a year had passed, the grocer came to Paris, examined his barrels, and found that five hundred pounds were missing. He claimed damages from Derues, who declared he had never received any more, and as the honey had been sent in confidence and there was no contract and no receipt to show, the provincial tradesman could not obtain compensation. As though having risen by the ruin of Madame Legrand and her four children was not enough, Derues grudged even the morsel of bread he had been obliged to leave her. A few days after the fire in the cellar, which enabled him to go through a second bankruptcy, Madame Legrand, now undeceived and not believing his lamentations, demanded the money due to her according to their agreement. Derues pretended to look for his copy of the contract and could not find it. "'Give me yours, madame,' said he. "'We will write the receipt upon it. Here is the money.' The widow opened her purse and took out her copy. Derues snatched it and tore it up. "'Now!' he exclaimed. "'You are paid. I owe you nothing now. If you like, I will declare it on oath in court, and no one will disbelieve my word.' "'Wretched man!' said the unfortunate widow. "'May God forgive your soul, but your body will assuredly end on the gallows.' It was all in vain that she complained, and told of this abominable swindle. Derues had been beforehand with her, and the slander he had disseminated bore its fruits. It was said that his old mistress was endeavouring by an odious falsehood to destroy the reputation of a man who had refused to be her lover. Although reduced to poverty, she left the house where she had a right to remain rent-free, preferring the hardest and dreariest life to the torture of remaining under the same roof with the man who had caused her ruin. We might relate a hundred other pieces of knavery, but it must not be supposed that, having begun by murder, Derues would draw back and remain contented with theft. Two fraudulent bankruptcies would have sufficed for most people. For him they were merely a harmless pastime. Here we must place two dark and obscure stories, two crimes of which he is accused, two victims whose death groans no one heard. The hypocrite's excellent reputation had crossed the Parisian bounds. A young man from the country, intending to start as a grocer in the capital, applied to Derues for the necessary information and begged for advice. He arrived at the latter's house with a sum of eight thousand livres, which he placed in Derues' hands, asking him for assistance in finding a business. The sight of gold was enough to rouse the instinct of crime in Derues, and the witches who hailed Macbeth with the promise of royalty did not rouse the latter's ambitious desires to a greater height than the chance of wealth did the greed of the assassin, whose hands once closed over the eight thousand livres were never again relaxed. He received them as a deposit and hid them along with his previous plunder, vowing never to return them. Several days had elapsed, when one afternoon Derues returned home with an air of such unusual cheerfulness that the young man questioned him. "'Have you heard some good news for me?' he asked. 
or have you had some luck yourself my young friend answered derues as for me success depends on my own efforts and fortune smiles on me but i have promised to be useful to you your parents have trusted me and i must prove that their confidence is well founded i have heard to-day of a business for disposal in one of the best parts of paris you can have it for twelve thousand livres and i wish i could lend you the amount you want but you must write to your father persuade him reason with him do not lose so good a chance he must make a little sacrifice and he will be grateful to me later in accordance with their son's request the young man's parents dispatched a sum of four thousand livres requesting derues to lose no time in concluding the purchase three weeks later the father very uneasy arrived in paris he came to inquire about his son having heard nothing from him derues received him with the utmost astonishment appearing convinced that the young man had returned home one day he said the youth informed him that he had heard from his father who had given up all idea of establishing him in paris having arranged an advantageous marriage for him near home and he had taken his twelve thousand livres for which derues produced a receipt and started on his return journey one evening when nearly dark derues had gone out with his guest who complained of headache and internal pains where did they go no one knew but derues only returned at daybreak alone weary and exhausted and the young man was never heard of again one of his apprentices was the constant object of reproof the boy was accused of negligence wasting his time of spending three hours over a task which might have been done in less than one when derues had convinced the father a parisian bourgeois that his son was a bad boy and a good-for-nothing he came to this man one day in a state of wild excitement your son he said ran away yesterday with six hundred livres with which i had to meet a bill to-day he knew where i kept this money and has taken it he threatened to go before a magistrate and denounce the thief and was only appeased by being paid the sum he claimed to have lost but he had gone out with the lad the evening before and returned alone in the early hours of the morning however the veil which concealed the truth was becoming more and more transparent every day three bankruptcies had diminished the consideration he enjoyed and people began to listen to complaints and accusations which till now had been considered mere inventions designed to injure him another attempt at trickery made him feel it desirable to leave the neighborhood he had rented a house close to his own the shop of which had been tenanted for seven or eight years by a wine merchant he required from this man if he wished to remain where he was a sum of six hundred livres as a payment for goodwill although the wine merchant considered it an exorbitant charge yet on reflection he decided to pay it rather than go having established a good business on these premises as was well known before long a still more errant piece of dishonesty gave him an opportunity for revenge a young man of good family who was boarding with him in order to gain some business experience having gone into derues shop to make some purchases amused himself while waiting by idly writing his name on a piece of blank paper lying on the counter which he left there without thinking more about it derues knowing the young man had means as soon as he had gone converted the signed paper into a promissory note for two thousand livres to his order payable at the majority of the signer the bill negotiated in trade arrived when due at the wine merchants 
who, much surprised, called his young boarder and showed him the paper adorned with his signature. The youth was utterly confounded, having no knowledge of the bill whatever, but nevertheless could not deny his signature. On examining the paper carefully, the handwriting was recognized as Derues. The wine merchant sent for him, and when he arrived made him enter a room, and having locked the door produced the promissory note. Derues acknowledged having written it and tried various falsehoods to excuse himself. No one listened to him, and the merchant threatened to place the matter in the hands of the police. Then Derues wept, implored, fell on his knees, acknowledged his guilt, and begged for mercy. He agreed to restore the six hundred livres exacted from the wine merchant on condition that he should see the note destroyed and that the matter should end there. He was then about to be married and dreaded a scandal. Shortly after, he married Marie-Louise Nicolet, daughter of a harness-maker at Melon. One's first impression in considering this marriage is one of profound sorrow and utmost pity for the young girl whose destiny was linked with that of this monster. One thinks of the horrible future, of youth and innocence, blighted by the tainting breath of the homicide, of candor united to hypocrisy, of virtue to wickedness, of legitimate desires linked to disgraceful passions, of purity mixed with corruption. The thought of these contrasts is revolting, and one pities such a dreadful fate. But we must not decide hastily. Madame Derues has not been convicted of any active part in her husband's later crimes, but her history, combined with his, shows no trace of suffering, nor of any revolt against a terrible complicity. In her case the evidence is doubtful, and public opinion must decide later. In 1773 Derues relinquished retail business, and left the Saint-Victor neighborhood, having taken an apartment in the Rue des Dubois near the Rue Bertin Poiret, in the parish of Saint-Germain-Lacherois, where he had been married. He first acted on commission for the Benedictine Camaldian fathers of the forest of Senart, who had heard of him as a man wholly given to piety. Then, giving himself up to usury, he undertook what is known as business affairs, a profession which, in such hands, could not fail to be lucrative, being aided by his exemplary morals and honest appearance. It was the more easy for him to impose on others, as he could not be accused of any of the deadly vices which so often end in ruin—gaming, wine, and women. Until now he had displayed only one passion, that of avarice. But now another developed itself—that of ambition. He bought houses and land, and when the money was due allowed himself to be sued for it. He bought even lawsuits, which he muddled with all the skill of a rascally attorney. Experienced in bankruptcy, he undertook the management of failures, contriving to make dishonesty appear in the light of unfortunate virtue. When this demon was not occupied with poison, his hands were busy with every social iniquity. He could only live and breathe in an atmosphere of corruption. His wife, who had already presented him with a daughter, gave birth to a son in February 1774. Derues, in order to better support the heirs of grandeur and the territorial title which he had assumed, invited persons of distinction to act as sponsors. The child was baptized Tuesday, February 15th. We give the text of the baptismal register as a curiosity. Antoine Maximilien Joseph, son of Antoine Francois Derues, gentleman, seigneur of Jean de Ville, Hershey's, Vicomont, and other places, formerly merchant-grocer, and of Madame Marie-Louise Nicolet, his wife, 
godfathers, T-H-N-T-P, lords of, etc., etc., godmothers, Madame M, F-R, C-D-V, etc., signed A.F. Derue, Sr. But all this dignity did not exclude the sheriff's officers, whom as befitted so great a man he treated with the utmost insolence, overwhelming them with abuse when they came to enforce an execution. Such scandals had several times aroused the curiosity of his neighbors, and did not redound to his credit. His landlord, wearied of all this clamor, and most especially weary of never getting any rent without a fight for it, gave him notice to quit. Derues removed to the Rue Beauborg, where he continued to act as commission agent under the name of Cyrano Derues de Berry. And now we will concern ourselves no more with the unraveling of this tissue of imposition. We will wander no longer in this labyrinth of fraud, of low and vile intrigue, of dark crime of which the clue disappears in the night, and of which the trace is lost in a doubtful mixture of blood and mire. We will listen no longer to the cry of the widow and her four children reduced to beggary, to the groans of obscure victims, to the cries of terror and the death groan which echoed one night through the vaults of a country house near Beauvais. Behold other victims whose cries are yet louder. Behold yet other crimes and a punishment which equals them in terror. Let these nameless ghosts, these silent specters, lose themselves in the clear daylight which now appears, and make room for other phantoms which rend their shrouds and issue from the tomb demanding vengeance. Derues was now soon to have a chance of obtaining immortality. Hitherto his blows had been struck by chance. Henceforth he uses all the resources of his infernal imagination. He concentrates all his strength on one point, conceives and executes his crowning piece of wickedness. He employs for two years all his science as cheat, forger, and poisoner in extending the net which was to entangle a whole family, and taken in his own snare he struggles in vain. In vain does he seek to gnaw through the meshes which confine him. The foot placed on the last rung of this ladder of crime stands also on the first step by which he mounts the scaffold. About a mile from Villeneuve-le-Rod-Lessens, there stood in 1775 a handsome house. Overlooking the windings of the Yon on one side, and on the other a garden and park belonging to the estate of Buisson-Souf, it was a large property, admirably situated and containing productive fields, wood and water, but not everywhere kept in good order and showing something of the embarrassed fortune of its owner. During some years the only repairs had been those necessary in the house itself and its immediate vicinity. Here and there pieces of dilapidated wall threatened to fall altogether, and enormous stems of ivy had invaded and stifled vigorous trees. In the remoter portions of the park, briars barred the road and made walking almost impossible. This disorder was not destitute of charm, and at an epoch when landscape gardening consisted chiefly in straight alleys, and in giving to nature a cold and monotonous symmetry, one's eye rested with pleasure on these neglected clumps, on these waters which had taken a different course to that which art had assigned to them, on these unexpected and picturesque scenes. A wide terrace, overlooking the winding river, extended along the front of the house. Three men were walking on it, two priests and the owner of buisson Surf, Monsieur de Saint-Faust de Lamotte. One priest was the cure of Villeneuve-le-Rolles-Sands, the other was a Camaldulian monk, who had come to see the cure about a clerical matter, 
and who was spending some days at the presbytery. The conversation did not appear to be lively. Every now and then Monsieur de Lamotte stood still and shading his eyes with his hand from the brilliant sunlight which flooded the plain, and was strongly reflected from the water, endeavoured to see if some new object had not appeared on the horizon, then slowly resumed his walk with a movement of uneasy impatience. The tower clock struck with a noisy resonance. Six o'clock already!' he exclaimed. "'They will surely not arrive to-day.' "'Why despair?' said the cure. "'Your servant has gone to meet them. We might see their boat any moment.' "'But, my father,' returned Monsieur de Lamotte, "'the long days are already past. In another hour the mist will rise, and then they would not venture on the river.' "'Well, if that happens, we shall have to be patient. They will stay all night at some little distance, and you will see them to-morrow morning.' "'My brother is right,' said the other priest. "'Come, monsieur, do not be anxious.' "'You both speak with the indifference of persons to whom family troubles are unknown.' "'What?' said the cure. "'Do you really think that because our sacred profession condemns us both to celibacy, we are therefore unable to comprehend an affection such as yours, on which I myself pronounced the hallowing benediction of the church, if you remember, nearly fifteen years ago?' It is perhaps intentionally, my father, that you recall the date of my marriage. I readily admit that the love of one's neighbor may enlighten you as to another love to which you have yourself been a stranger. I dare say it seems odd to you that a man of my age should be anxious about so little, as though he were a lovesick youth. But for some time past I have had presentiments of evil, and I am really becoming superstitious. He again stood still, gazing up the river and seeing nothing resumed his place between the two priests, who had continued their walk. "'Yes,' he continued, "'I have presentiments which refuse to be shaken off. I am not so old that age can have weakened my powers and reduced me to childishness. I cannot even say what I am afraid of. But separation is painful and causes an involuntary terror. Strange, is it not? Formerly I used to leave my wife for months together when she was young and— my son only an infant. I loved her passionately, yet I could go with pleasure. Why, I wonder, is it so different now? Why should a journey to Paris on business and a few hours' delay make me so terribly uneasy? Do you remember, my father? He resumed after a pause, turning to the cure. Do you remember how lovely Marie looked on our wedding day? Do you remember her dazzling complexion and the innocent candor of her expression? the sure token of the most truthful and purest of minds. That is why I love her so much now. We do not now sigh for one another, but the second love is stronger than the first, for it is founded on recollection and is tranquil and confident in friendship. It is strange that they have not returned. Something must have happened. If they do not return this evening, I do not now think it possible. I shall go to Paris myself tomorrow. I think, said the other priest, that at twenty you must indeed have been excitable, a veritable tinder-box to have retained so much energy. Come, monsieur, try to calm yourself and have patience. You yourself admit it can only be a few hours' delay. But my son accompanied his mother, and he is our only one, and so delicate. He alone remains of our three children, and you do not realize how the affection of parents who feel age approaching is concentrated on an only child— 
If I lost Edouard, I should die. I suppose, then, as you let him go, his presence at Paris was necessary? No, his mother went to obtain a loan, which is needed for the improvements required on the estate. Why, then, did you let him go? I would willingly have kept him here, but his mother wished to take him. A separation is as trying to her as to me, and we all but quarreled over it. I gave way. There was one way of satisfying all three. You might have gone also. Yes, but Monsieur Le Cure will tell you that a fortnight ago I was chained to my armchair, swearing under my breath like a pagan, and cursing the follies of my youth. Forgive me, my father. I mean that I had the gout, and I forgot that I am not the only sufferer, and that it racks the old age of the philosopher quite as much as that of the courtier. The fresh wind, which often rises just at sunset, was already rustling in the leaves. Long shadows darkened the course of the yon, and stretched across the plain. The water, slightly troubled, reflected a confused outline of its banks and the clouded blue of the sky. The three gentlemen stopped at the end of the terrace and gazed into the already fading distance. A black spot, which they had just observed in the middle of the river, caught a gleam of light in passing a low meadow between two hills, and for a moment took shape as a barge, then was lost again, and could not be distinguished from the water. Another moment and it reappeared more distinctly. It was indeed a barge, and now the horse could be seen towing it against the current. Again it was lost at a bend of the river shaded by willows, and they had to resign themselves to incertitude for several minutes. Then a white handkerchief was waved on the prow of the boat, and Monsieur de Lamotte uttered a joyful exclamation. "'It is indeed they!' he cried. "'Do you see them, Monsieur Le Cure? I see my boy. He is waving the handkerchief, and his mother is with him. But I think there is a, a third person. Yes, there is a man. Is there not?' look well indeed said the cure if my bad sight does not deceive me i should say there was someone seated near the rudder but it looks like a child probably someone from the neighborhood who has profited by the chance of a lift home the boat was advancing rapidly they could now hear the cracking of the whip with which the servant urged on the tow-horse and now it stopped at an easy landing-place barely fifty paces from the terrace madame de lamotte landed with her son and the stranger and her husband descended from this terrace to meet her long before he arrived at the garden gate his son's arms were around his neck are you quite well edouard oh yes perfectly and your mother quite well too she is behind in as great a hurry to meet you as i am but she can't run as I do, and you must go halfway. Whom have you brought with you? A gentleman from Paris. From Paris? Yes, uh, Monsieur Derues. But Mamma will tell you all about that. Here she is. End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.